Hey everybody, this is Dave Doctor. What the hell, Doctor Dave Broadback? Dave Broadback here from the Psychology Department at Algoma University for the twenty-two winter twenty-two term, and the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych thirty-one hundred six, Animal Behavior. Um, maybe some of you thought that animals weren't things that we talked about in psychology, but psychology is the study, the scientific study of behavior and cognition. So. Here it is, me talking about animal behavior and some of my students asking questions. I hope you enjoy it. If you don't, well, that's on you because I'm really a good teacher. Talk with the organization of behavior. This is actually kind of fun for me for a couple reasons. This is the first actual lecture I've given in two years. So, so far, we've talked about genetics, we've talked about evolution, learning, all this stuff. Let's talk about how behavior is organized. So, the thing is, animals can do a lot of different things, right? They can forage, that means just looking for food. Foraging is just looking for food, right? They can defend a territory or defend a resource. So even animals that aren't territorial might defend a resource. They can look for mates. There's all kinds of sacks. There's all kinds of things animals can do. Okay, so the question becomes, when do you do what? Right, like when do you defend? When do you look for food? When do you X, when do you Y, when do you Z? Usually only a single type of behavior is done at a given time. And that makes a great deal of sense because it's typically less than ideal, less suboptimal as we would say, uh, to do two things at once. Sometimes you have to. Sometimes if you're out foraging, you also have to be vigilant looking for predators. But you know what? If you're looking for predators at the same time that you're looking for food, you're not going to be as good at looking for predators or food. Right? Of course, I can't see that well for all I know. It doesn't actually say NASA. It's just like a little complicated. But... <laughs> So do, also, doing things in the wrong order would be maladaptive. So even within a kind of behavior, think about a mating dance of some sort. And next time we're talking about the evolution of behavior, I'm going to tell you all about courtship rituals and infant flies. And I'll tell you, that's pretty precise. And a lot of courtship, corpship? Yes, corpship. That's when you are with a dead person and you want to put them on a ship. It's a corpse ship. But, yeah, some of these are jokes. Thank you for, thank you for the polite little tittering. <laughs> thank you, that's even better. Good. Um, a lot of these like you know, courtship dances, if you don't do them in the wrong order, if you're a male doing this for a female, the female's going to go, oh well, yeah, that guy's a loser. You can't dance. I find ostriches a little disturbing. Giant flightless birds scare the shit out of me, actually. Um, I've seen some ostriches, like, in person. You know, now and then somebody, oh, ostrich farm for one you know, place. They're weird. And if anything wants to, if you ever want to be reminded that birds are just extinct dinosaurs, ostriches, freaking Canada geese. Ostriches just are, they're big. Canada geese are just evil. <laughs> Ride them on my bike in the summer. I'm riding them along, and it's like a Canada goose looking at me like, come at me, bro. Come on. Chicken shit, good luck. I usually yell, get in my way, goddamn dinosaurs. Yeah, dinosaurs, yeah, I'll tell you. Ostriches are weird. They're kind of delicious. So in the end, humans win. 
God, that looks awful. I'm sorry about the brightness. One of these things, if I, I have a feeling if I tried to affect the lights, they'd all explode or something. Yeah, this, this room has only been here since 2005, but no idea. So there must be some sort of central control mechanism, right? Controlling the order that animals do things, controlling when an animal does X, Y, or Z. Yeah, there must be. There's probably more than one. But there's got to be some kind of central control mechanism, right? So when you think of homeostatic systems, you know, keeping yourself, your, this could be you, okay, so human. Keeping your body temperature normal, right, right around 37, 37.1 roughly Celsius. Actually, I think it's a little lower than that. It's a little lower than 37. I think the data now show it's like 136.9. Most of the data that were collected on what normal human body temperature was were collected when we didn't have as much medication around, and most of the, the effect of actually having infections. So the real human body temperature is probably closer to 36.8 degrees, something like that, 37. Wild. Anyway, something, your body tries to keep its regular temperature. See what I'm saying when I was doing this from home, how I don't like sitting still? This is so liberating! No, it really is. This feels great. Okay, so this is like a this is thermal regulation. It's hard to see what this says here. We have a set point. So with us, it's let's just say 37. We have effectors. That's just a way of saying things that make things happen. Okay. We have the controlled variable. That's our temperature, and then it feeds back. It feeds back into this is how a thermostat works. Right, you know this, when you turn the heat up or turn the cool up if you're using air conditioning, it doesn't get hotter any more quickly if you turn it up to 30 compared to 21. I'm just going to leave that where it is. Because I've had this discussion too many times with too many people. Also because I'm a, I'm a father, and all fathers do, all men do this. You play on the temperature, right? Your dad does that, doesn't he? And all the guys in here are going, <laughs> you wait like six, eight years, you've got kids, you'll be doing exactly the same thing. Because when you become a father, that happens. It's, it's science, you can't argue with it. Some of these times I'm just I'm kidding. It's true. So this actually happens in humans. So we can, there's a few things that we do to keep ourselves at a regular temperature. For example, you want to gain temperature, vasoconstriction, or shivering. Right? If you want to lose heat, we get dilation of blood vessels, but also we sweat. We don't pant. Other animals pant. Maybe you do. Do that in the privacy of your own home. I don't even want to know what you're paying. I'm not pointing at anybody in particular. All of you. This works, and this feedback can be positive or negative. So it can be turn it on or turn it off. With human thermoregulation, it does both. A thermostat typically only turns on the heat in your house or turns on the uh, air conditioning. They usually control both. And there are more modern systems like heat pumps that do that. Most of us don't have those in our houses, which is because they're not efficient. I've got that electric heat. You know, with the Basically, it's like just maybe just light a pile of twenties on, uh, on fire because it'll it's it's, it's cheaper. <laughs> what about behavior? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, okay, is panting behavior? Is shivering behavior? It's not interesting behavior, but we could call it behavior if we felt like it. Let's talk about actual interesting animal behavior. So the behavior systems approach, which is what I'm going to talk about in the next little bit, says that there are different systems that serve different functions. So it starts from a functional standpoint. It says we have a foraging system and a sex behavior system and predation system, uh, defense system, etc. Grooming system, we'll talk about that in a certain species in just a moment. 
Okay, so it divides it up into functional units, which makes sense because evolution acts on function. You know, it can't act on cause directly. So feeding, mating, grooming, etc., as I just said. These different systems are put into action by what are called releasing stimuli. So if there is a, a predator, if there is a predator, the defense system goes to Okay? Except. You know, you know what it is? It's now the meteor's coming. Let's finally make 2022 even worse. I was in a class once, you know EW200? The other room, the other sort of big-ish room in this building, not this building, but over there. And um, they, were, they were doing something to the roof. And they're all, there's people, I can hear the people in the room, we're all laughing. And then we started seeing spikes come through the roof. And I said, that's it, we're done. <laughs> So I had a feeling SEAL Team 6 was coming in and just hauling me off to get me. And I've done nothing wrong, man! I'm an entire, entirely different person. There at that home, I was sitting there going, This is really a classic approach to ethology. And if you get into sort of, if you study ethology in more detail, Maybe the graduate level, you probably hear all about this. Here's some examples. Let's go over into examples. Let's talk about dust bathing in Burmese red jungle fowl. Which are the modern ancestors of chickens? Enough to the point that you, you, can, you can interbreed them with the common chicken calendar. But chickens come from Asia a long time ago. And what the humans do, we invented something that was unique and big with legs on a stomach. We invented it by taking Burmese red jungle fowl, these, these animals that live in Southeast Asia. They went all over the world. Every culture pretty much eats chicken, right? That eats meat. And because people did that, it's something new. Like, hey, let's take some of those animals and make them more delicious. So there's this behavior called dust bathing. And the function of this behavior is to clean oil from their feathers. Okay. Some birds bathe in water, and you've probably all seen birds bathing in water. If you've got, you know, if you see a puddle in the spring, you'll see little songbirds dancing around the puddle. It's the coolest thing. Watch it next time you see it. It's very stereotypical. They do everything in the same way. You have to watch one individual. They do everything in the same order all the time. Because the releasing stimulus for a little, for a song, let's say chickadee, is a pool of water. Okay. Now these Burmese jungle fowl, what they do is they bathe in dust. See, what happens is the dust clumps up on the oil and then they shake it off and it comes off. Okay? You want some oil in your feathers, you don't want them it's like your hair. You, you, you stumble over your hair. You don't want it, you know, too greasy. You look like Don Draper. Madman reference in any place. So what happens is the animal takes its claws and it starts clawing up some dust. You can actually see. It's hard to see in this picture. You might be able to see if you're looking at it in your computer. Uh, yeah, it's really hard to see in this picture. But when they when they do it. Because I've watched, I know somebody who does Burmese red jungle fowl dust bathing research. Because why not? And I've watched jungle fowl do this in sawdust. Because sawdust is easily available. So they just pour sawdust on the floor. And boy, they just, a big cloud of sawdust comes up. They're basically making themselves a, 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 almost like a shower. But it's dust. And then what they do is they scratch their bill on the ground. So now they're going to get more dust put up into their neck. Okay? 
So it ends up, there's almost like a cloud of dust. And one of the things that they then do, when they've got enough dust on them, they do what's called a vertical wing shake. So they shake their wings like this, up and down. And sometimes people don't know this about chickens, because you know your domestic chicken will do this. So if anybody here, if you have chickens, chances are somewhere here. You've probably seen this behavior. And no, they're not trying to fly. Chickens aren't stupid, they know they can't fly. <laughs> well, chickens are kind of stupid. And they're still around. But they do this vertical wing shake. And that now shakes the dust with oil attached to it. Oh, and they've had a bath. I don't want to have a bath in dust. But I'm a human, we have right, I moved my head like a bird there. <laughs> Some of you who don't know me are thinking, gee, that first month was okay, but now I think I've made a mistake. I can't use just any more because these be little nuts. Or maybe too much coffee. And some of you are thinking, could it be cocaine? <laughs> I have never, ever, ever had coffee. <laughs> okay, this is interesting. As you can probably tell, I don't like things that speed me up. Because <laughs> I'm already here, man. So I don't need extras. So this is pretty cool, this behavior. Let's talk a bit about it from this behavior systems approach. It's really complicated behavior. I've given you sort of the highlights. There's a lot of different things. And I think this drawing here kind of comes up. This is uh, from a paper by Jerry Hogan, uh, who's the guy that I know who does this kind of work. But he retired, but I think he still does it. Talks just like Jeff Goldblum. And then there's, ooh, that's baby. Yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was not that good a Jeff Goldblum impression. I'm not denying that. It's a very good Jerry Hogan impression. There's this stimulus, there's dust. And then we get Bill Rick, scratch, wing shake, etc. Um, one of the cool things that happened, this is uh, some older work, Verstegard, Klaus Verstegard, Jerry Hogan, and I don't know who Kreut is. I mentioned the other day when we were doing this, when I was, uh, we were on Zoom, and I said, you'll notice how many people in animal behavior are Dutch. I don't know why. Verstegard, Dutch, Kreut, Dutch, Hogan, married to a Dutch woman. It's a little weird. I don't know why. Who knows why? They're all Dutch. It's crazy. All like Max Verstappen. So they actually found that jungle fowl don't need dust. What did they do? They have these Burmese red jungle fowl. They deprive them of dust. If they have never experienced dust, they will what's called wire mesh behave. Is there wire mesh cages? They'll do all the behavior. Nothing happens. But they do all the behavior. If they have experienced dust before, like normal chickens would have, and they don't have any dust, they'll just wait. They'll just wait until they see some dust. But if they've never seen dust when they before they've hatched, like when they hatch, they've never seen any before they've hatched. Uh, post hatch, um, they'll just do all the same behaviors, but on a, in a cage that's completely devoid of dust. So they don't need dust as a releasing stimulus if they've never seen dust. If they've seen dust, they need dust. Hogan and Van Boxel, Van Boxel. Canadian, but it's a Dutch name. It's quite a while back. That's Frances Van Boxel. She just did a master's degree, actually, and then left academia. But I remember her doing this experiment. Um, they found that dust bathing was already rhythmic at 14 days. So it happens in chicks, 14 day old chicks. They're already dust bathing at 14 days old. And it's rhythmic. They do it at noon and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Now, adult jungle fowl only do it at noon. So if noon comes along and they've never experienced dust, they just move around in their cages like they're dusted. If noon comes along and they've experienced dust and they don't see any dust, they just don't dust it. But as soon as they see dust a couple of days later, it doesn't matter what time they it's kind of like, you know how like you have it, like you get to get a shower in the morning. But if you go camping and you come home, what's the first thing you do? I need a shower. Even if there were showers when you were camping. I need a real shower in a real house. All right, questions about that? And just like when I was at home, I, I can't see very well, so just ask. Yeah, oh, I see you too. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, um, did they test like what happens for the for the jungle? Uh, what is, what's the name again? Jungle fowl. Jungle fowl that have never seen dust before. Did they then introduce dust and like did, did they just? I guess they will dust bathe if you introduce dust. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Good question. Really good question. Because I should have actually said that. I didn't. So thank you. Other question. That I don't know, and that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. um, this stuff gets pretty stamped in pretty early. So I would guess that they would dust bathe, but they would still do wire mesh bathing. Because they didn't have, we talked last time about critical and sensitive periods, right? And the last time was on before, time before. And it turns out that this has a critical period. So I skipped over it for a second. And if they haven't had dust, they never learn to dust bathe, but they will dust bathe if you give them dust. But they don't need it. So they probably wouldn't need it again. It's pretty, at that point, it's like, I do this weird thing at noon. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a really stupid question as well. Other questions? You know, constantly my cell phone carrier texts me. Here's a deal on a phone. I have a phone. And whenever I get a text, it's like, I hope it's not something with my family. So I feel that out. Just double click and check. And of course, I can't check things surreptitiously because I can't see, so I'm like this. circadian rhythms. Dust bathing has a circadian rhythm to it. It happens once a day. Unless they're, uh, you know, checked and it's twice a day. But most, animal, most activities that animals engage in are temporally organized. They happen at a given time. And dust bathing is one example. There are many. Circadian, which comes from Latin. I took Latin in high school for four years. And I know that circadia means roughly a day or about a day. I also know that canis est immensa stat, pestis fricaper, means the dog is standing on the table, you scoundrel. If I ever run into a Roman soldier, like an ancient Rome, like not a modern Roman soldier, because they're just soldiers too terrible. I didn't say that. I could say mater est in lecto recumbent. Mother is lying on the couch. It's completely useless. But I do know that circadia, circadian means about a day. Most living things have rhythms, which makes some sense, what with the rotating of the earth and such. It's a property of where they live. It's as much a property of the universe for living things as the idea of time and space and number are. So every living thing pretty much has a rhythm. That's a really simple rhythm. Then organisms like slime molds. And it's all very often controlled by the same Twitter and yes, it's the same gene, just, just freaking cool as hell. So Yeah, the, the last point there was what I just said. The environment changes on a predictable schedule. 
So if we've got something here like, well, this mentions SCN. We have a master clock. We being humans, we being other mammals have a thing called the SCN. I don't have my stylus with me. Super. Chiasmatic. C-H-I-A-S-M-A-T-I-C. Chiasmatic. Nucleus. I'm not going to spell nucleus. You're in a science class. You can't spell nucleus. That's on you. So, the SCN is a bunch of cells above your optic chiasm. It, it, it responds to light. Oh, that makes sense because detecting light is how we know that there's a new thing. It was almost shattering, right? Detecting light, Mr. Spock, is how we know there's been a big thing. Some of these apparently are just for me. So what we have here is a some sort of sensory receptor with, with, with us. It's going to be through our eyes. With many lizards, they have a patch on the back of their neck. It's not an eye, but it is a patch of light-sensitive skin. Which, by the way, is probably how eyes evolved. And it hooks up their skin. Reset. Resets it. Why is it reset? Because we also have seasons. Some days are longer than others. It's nice now that you can have dinner at 5.30 and it's not dark yet. I find nothing more depressing. That's not true. There's all kinds of things more depressing. But I don't like eating dinner when it's dark. So what happens is we reset our clock every day, 8 a.m. And our clock runs not quite exactly 24 hours. The clock we have runs, and again, when I say we, I mean living things, about 24 and a half hours. Less. And that allows it to be reset. You know what, if we didn't have seasons, it would depend where you live on the planet, but I think you would have evolved to have a constant clock depending on how, how quickly your planet started. But, but we have seasons because of the tilt, the axis. All right. Like it says here, we've got various behaviors, feeding, locomotion, etc. And you would all know about your clock being off. I know we have quite a few international students in the room, and also many of us have traveled. You get right? You show up in a new place and it's like, well, it can't be. Your body's like, it's dinner time. And you go, yeah, but it's not. Jet lag's a real thing. And it's caused by your clock being different than what the planet is inside you. And it's harder to reset because we don't have a, you know, we didn't evolve in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment where we could travel to different time zones. That's a pretty new thing. You can't get bicycle lag or horse lag or foot behavior jet lag because you travel with it. And the worst part of jet lag is that at first you think it didn't affect you because you're awesome. And I don't get jet lag, I'm great. UK once and I got there and it was 10 o'clock in the morning, but it was, that was fine. My body thought it was five, but it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And I went for a couple beers, because, you know, I'm me. I went by noon, but by noon, but. I was great, I had a dinner party that night. 
was up at one o'clock in the morning. Because my body thought it was early. Your body was earlier. Yeah, I don't get jet lag. I'm fine. Woke up the next day at 7 p.m. <laughs> so, and then eventually your body resets, right? This happens to all of us. It's just something. Anybody who says, I don't get jet lag is a liar. Maybe it doesn't affect them a whole lot, but your body gets very confused. So, we can look at all kinds of fascinating behaviors and see how they're rhythmic. How do we do this? We set them up in a situation that is free running. So in constant light or constant darkness. And because the clock is just a little bit past 24 hours, the behavior shifts. As you can see here, Bring my stylus, but I can point this out to you here. So these are crickets. Those aren't actually crickets. This is just recording of the cricket's song. They chirp at night. And you can see how it's shifting over. You see this here? How it shifts over. Right? So they're, because their clock is a little more than 24 hours, each day it shifts a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And if I put you in constant light or darkness, it happens to you too. There have been experiments done with people. People volunteer, they put in constant light. You can't really put people in constant darkness. It's um, really, really psychological. It's, it's, there's a word for it, it means called torture. The constant light you can do, people can live like that. You, could, you can sleep in the light, it's not great. And people's um, estimation of how much time has passed is wrong, but also what happens is they start getting up a little bit later, a little bit later, and eventually you can have people 12 hours clock shift. In about a couple of about three weeks. Of course, you can't have a phone on your watch or your And then what happens here is you reset, you start having a, a light-dark cycle. So the lights come on, lights go out. Here we have the lights going out because the crickets are starting to chirp. What happens is it's called entrainment. Just like the word train. Okay, so entrainment. Train right there. It becomes entrained to the light. Actually, it's to the, well, it is to the light, but the darkness is what this is something we can do. One of the things that you do when you, when we have, um, you know, daily, you know, the ridiculous thing we do every year. It's daylight saving time. So we shift everything over an hour. Remember, the first few days, it's actually kind of rough. reason you got look see how smooth I was there I walked into that because I can't see but then I sat down like I'm cool consciousness from I'm glad some of you laughed at that because I'm not seriously it doesn't affect me I mean it affects me but I'm not offended by it oh pissed off my genetic You learn so much about that you don't want to know. Anyway, what happens is, what do we do? We, we start having our meals at the same time. So when you get up in the morning after the clock shift, when it's late, and you, let's say you have an alarm, you get up, you have your meals at the same time you normally would, you will shift over more quickly. So I know it doesn't feel like you should be eating yet, depending on the shift, if it's too late, try to stay in the same schedule. Because food will entrain behavior. One of the things, in fact, they do on transatlantic flights, and I think, again, those of you who have taken flights like this, know this is they will have breakfast when the sun comes up. It doesn't matter that your watch says, you know, back home in Mumbai, it's not time for breakfast. 
and the, the play pants are coming, or they're opening up the shades, and they're turning the lights on, going, good morning, everybody! And you go, shut up! It's only going on British Airways when they say, good morning. You go, good morning, goddess. Like, it's, it's so, so beautiful, because they're just so nice. They're so pleasant. Except that, you know, just saying, British Airways rocks. It's the best. They all just seem like they're perfect people. Hello. Nice to see you. Very good. Oh, yes, sir. Very good. You never tell if they're, they're kidding or not kidding or they're serious. They're all, it's all like, just do it with embarrassment. But they bring you food. They're doing that for a reason. They're doing that to, to train your car. Right? It works better. It also kills time. Because there's nothing better than sleeping on a plane, is there? Unless you, I don't know, maybe some of you are super wealthy and get those little sweets. I hate people who are like that. I hate. Really dislike, though. <laughs> some of these are jokes. I, mean, I, I don't hate any of you. No, no problem. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Um, they're in training your clock. So food will entrain a clock. Light obviously will. Uh, access to mates. Sex, you want to train a clock? Uh, oh, well, my, my PhD advisor's uh, husband, uh, he, he used to uh, do work on circadian rhythms, and he found, he was the person that found out that sex could entrain the clock in the Hamptons. And it was a big deal when it came out because no one had done it before, it was a really cool result. And of course, then it gets picked up by the, the, the popular press. And eventually picked up by like the National Enquirer. And it actually said, and it's funny, he was giving his talk and he, he put a little slide up and he said, This research is supported by the Natural Science and Engineering Research Council of Canada. And then I, and he said, and I, this work I'm going to talk about today was published in Nature. It's like, oh, published in Nature or Science, like that's it, your, your goal. He said, It's also been mentioned here that the National Enquirer it just says jet lag, sex cures jet lag. It didn't have in hamsters. <laughs> but it probably wouldn't people. I'm not suggesting you have sex on a plane. Right. I just have a question. So let's say, for instance, uh, for me, I don't eat at regular times. Okay. Or let's just say someone who doesn't eat at regular yep. times. Will food still entrain the clock? Yeah, it should. Yeah, it should. Because most people still eat when they get up in the morning. You're hungry. And it's like, you know, the very first thing you do. Right, it's one of the first things most people do. Do you eat breakfast when you get up? Right, that's breakfast, do you eat day. something? I'm all over the place, like ridiculously, so okay. that's why I was curious, just for other Yeah, it still should. That should be pretty built in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten up and eaten in the middle of the night, but that's usually because I'm high. Um, <laughs> get up in the middle of the night, it's like, um. Okay, that's why that my food See, the three-meal-a-day thing is a, it's just oh. a fabrication. That's a thing we did, the humans invented for reasons of well, capitalism. Yeah. Right. And, and unions fought for lunch breaks. I mean, you know, the reason we have weekends, 40-hour work weeks, and holidays, and breaks is because of unions. So. But the fact that we have breakfast in the morning and dinner at night, which is a pretty common thing. The, the midday meal was not often a thing. It was usually a thing only to wealthy people. But yeah, I mean, in, in the West, I, I don't, uh, you know, European kind of cultures, I, I don't know. Almost everybody eats when they get up in the morning. But oftentimes it's very little, it's just something. Depending where you are. And it doesn't have to be, quote, breakfast food. I'd rather eat a big bowl of really hot spicy noodles always. <laughs> That's usually what I want to eat. Yeah. So then I'm just wondering more about like mating behaviors and training because that's yep. especially like in human population where it's not as consistent I feel like for timing. But it's often usually people have sex at night. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to hear from anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I don't care what you're having sex. You guys have fun. I don't want to hear about it. This is being recorded. <laughs> straight to the internet. Not live stream, but it's close. And just when I, when I get home, it just goes up on the phone. Yeah, so it's very cool, this kind of stuff. And this is one of the key things that organizes behavior is time of day. And this makes complete sense. Our planet spins. There are days. Done a little early, but I'm okay with that. I mean, if you are. So, behavior is controlled by internal mechanisms, is one of the key things we have to know right here. It's not just the external, it's not just the environment that's controlling behavior. It's also external things. So, seeing dust. So, the sunrise. It's also controlled though by external. So it's internal and external. So it's internal mechanisms like your internal clock. The behavior system is activated, but it's also the external. So it's both internal and the external. This shouldn't surprise us just like how things are a gene environment interaction all the time, right? So in other words, behavior is actually controlled by an ex you know, complicated interaction of external and internal variables. Any questions about this stuff in terms of Yeah, please, sir. Whatever what animals in like parts of Alaska where they're not sort of like only right Um there are parts of the world, as you mentioned, where we have either const almost constant light or almost constant dark. Very often animals that live in places where it's almost constant darkness at some time uh, hibernate. Right? So they just go away. Or they migrate away. So if you think about caribou, caribou are a great example. Caribou leave. Right? They just migrate. They, caribou migrate the way birds migrate. They don't respond. Because they can't fly. And that would be just disconcerting if caribou could fly. Um, but bears, for example, they fly. But that would be worse. <laughs> That's even worse than flying. Well, caribou come in herds, and I think a flock of flying caribou is more disturbing than one flying bear. Either of those means, again, I'm a little hot. But um, yeah, I think for the most part we're talking about things that will migrate. But I mean, uh, other stuff, I'm not terribly sure. Not a lot Good question. Little PhD for that. I smiled there. I wasn't doing something. Yes, please. Um, what about the animals underwater, like, um, Keep going. Like, what? Give me an example. Um, what about octopus? Like, they are a, they live, like, down, um, do they never experience light? Um, they, uh, yeah, they don't never experience light. They don't get a lot of light, but there is light. I've read stuff about octopus, I know they exist. Um, and I have a friend who does octopus work. But there are animals that do live in complete darkness. Uh, there are cave-dwelling fish, and they evolved from animals that lived in the light. I bet you, no, I don't know the answer to this, but I would bet all the money in my pocket, there's all the money in your pocket, that they still are living because they evolved from a living, from an animal that, by the way, I have no money in my but um, I would get the money, they, they, would, they, they would be rhythmic still. Because they evolved from a rhythmic species, from a species that lived where there was more light. Um, just because it's so little light that we can't really detect it doesn't mean there's no light. There are cases, though, where there are, there's no light. These cave going fish are great really examples. So the point that they don't even have eyes. Because they get, it gets selected against their eyes, because eyes have no advantages, a ton of disadvantages when there's just nothing to see. Yeah, very cool question too. I, I bet though that there are, I bet almost everything still is written. That's just a guess, but I mean, it's, it's ubiquitous in, in nature. I mean, slime molds, fruit flies, and hamsters basically have this one same gene that's 99% hybridized in exactly the same way. 
It's bizarre. It's the same freaking set of base pairs. And it's thousands of base pairs along this chain. And it somehow controls timing. just use sound compass, magnetic field, all that stuff to navigate. They also use what time of day they think it is. Because knowing what time of day it is allows you to know where you are on the Earth if you know the positions of the stars. Right? That's how people navigated before GPS. Right? So this is, and this is basically every culture that's ever been seafaring has figured out I don't mean just along coasts. I mean eventually when people that figure out they want to go further to sea. They figure out that, oh, if I know where a star is at a given time, I can know where I am on the planet. The weird thing is um, there's a lot of species of, well, there's bees, for example, and ants that navigate by the stars and the sun, and they, quote, know. When I say no, it's encoded in them. I'm not saying that they're consciously aware of it. But they know where they are on the planet because they know what time of day it is and where the, that, let's say, Polaris is the North Star. So it can actually screw with navigation. That's usually what happens. Um, it's actually it's truly amazing. So they think it's one time, but it's not. It's, another, it's actually another time. They take note of where they take a fix from the stars or the sun. They try to navigate and make mistakes. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. The thing is, so Tunisian, um, Tunisian desert ants navigate by the stars. Because I don't know if you've ever been to a desert, like a hot desert, not like the Arctic, but you know, like the Sahara, which is where Tunisia is. And if you're an ant and you go out and it's 45 degrees out, you get cooked. So when do they go foraging? They do that at night. They're nocturnal animals. So if they go out and they travel along, they have to get back to their nest. And the way they get back to their nest is not like everybody always thinks, oh, they just do it by odor. Nope. They, they navigate by the stars. And if you navigate by the stars, you have to know where the stars are and what time it is. The star field though changes over time. Star field now is different than it was a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. I should tell you something. Ants have to learn the position of stars in their structure. And if that doesn't actually like give you goosebumps like it just gave me, it's so cool. So knowing what time of day it is isn't just important for organizing things like when do I meet? When do I eat? When do I sleep? When do I chirp? Because I'm a crooked. It's important for things like if I know what time of day it is, I'm going to get back to my little house where all my little ant friends are. Because a single ant dies. <laughs> a single ant isn't going to really go last long. So that, you know, again, this is one of these things that I've often said. You don't think that's cool. I don't think it's cool. It's pretty awesome. Other questions? Some of these things. There's a reason a lot of people ask me. They ask me a lot of things. But one of the things they ask me is, Dave, why do you tell your students that you're high sometimes? And then I say, because it's completely legal and nobody can do it. And then the second thing they ask me is this. They say, why did you why are you interested? Why do you study animal behavior if you're a psychologist? And I say, well, psychology is the scientific study of cognition behavior, so I study behavior what happens. 
The other reason is because it's cool as hell. Like there's so many neat things that non-humans do. Humans are amazing. No other animal's doing what I'm doing right now. No other animal wonders about these questions. You know what else is cool? Ants know where the stars are supposed to be. Uh, why don't we pack it in for today? We'll talk about the evolution of behavior on today is Wednesday. Monday. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Since podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.